Our Father, the psalmist, somewhere in those 150 psalms, gives thanks to you because you daily bear our burdens. Every guy in here is carrying a burden, a weight, something that is pressing down and causing uh, discomfort, uh, anxiety, worry, uh, perhaps lack of sleep. Some burdens are bigger than others. Sometimes it's not just one big burden, it's a bunch of them. It's a bunch of small ones that just keep stacking up and they become uh, oppressive and the weight can get so great, the accumulated weight, that it feels like uh, we're having trouble catching our breath. Sometimes burdens can be crushing. We are grateful that you understand our thought from afar and you understand our burdens and our stresses and you invite us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. That, that is, that's not easy to do because we will pray and give them to you and then we immediately want to worry and fret all over again. Uh, we're human. We're learning this Christian life. We don't have it down yet. And we will never get it down totally. But what we would ask is that you would help us to grow in grace and help us to grow in trusting you. Uh, help us to grow in giving our lives and the burdens of our lives to you and trusting you to work. We like to be in control. We like to fix things. But every guy in this room has at least something in his life that he can't fix, that he can't repair, that he can't change. And it's in those areas that we are completely dependent upon you. So we entrust our souls, as Peter said. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We are grateful that throughout our lives, you have always been faithful to us. We have not always been faithful to you. We have been up and down and on the road and off the road. and We're all over the map. But you're steady. You're consistent. You never waver. You're for us. You sent your son to die in our place. You keep us going. You're faithful. Encourage us tonight as we open the pages of your book that you're at work in our lives, even with the difficulties, even with the pressures, even with the weights, and you're using them to mature us and to grow us. And in your way and in your time, 
You bring good out of these things. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We're here because we want to learn the lessons. We want your wisdom. There are great needs here. Thank you that you're sufficient for every need. You've got an answer for every area in our lives where we're confused. When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. We're grateful for that truth. We live off of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are in our second session tonight of a new series we are calling Land Mines. Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 5. And I'd like you to go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, 15. We're, uh, we're going to go back to this passage because there's, there's a lot here. Ephesians 5, 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. It's a waste. But be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled with the Spirit. Uh, Case could be made from history that Alexander the Great perhaps the greatest military genius of all time. One writer alluded to that fact when he said Alexander the Great was probably the greatest military genius who has moved armies across the pages of history. There has been no one else like him. Before the age of 35, he had conquered the world, but he died a drunkard. He had conquered the world but he could not conquer Alexander the Great. We're Christian men. We're studying the Bible, the book of books, God's revelation. Um, I said last week that when it comes to men, the enemy has a strategy. And the strategy God has called men. God has called husbands. God has called fathers. God has called grandfathers to be spiritual leaders of the home. In most homes, men do not lead. They provide, but they don't lead. In many Christian homes, it's the same thing. And oftentimes, Wives will say, I wish my husband were a spiritual leader. And that puts a lot of pressure on guys because uh, what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? That's why years ago I wrote the book Point Man. It's all about being a spiritual leader. And I said in Point Man that when it comes to spiritual leadership, 
If your father did not show you how to be a spiritual leader, how would you know what it looks like to be a spiritual leader? I've used this illustration before. If, um, if, if, if someone came in here and said, hey, uh, the United States cricket team is over here at the embassy suites, and they're all sick with the flu, and we got a flight tomorrow to go to London because we got to play in the cricket tournament. We need 20 guys who can go to England for a week and suit up and play cricket. Well, I don't mind going, I mean, hey, if, if I had the time, I wouldn't mind going to London for a week. All expenses paid, you know. Uh, I wouldn't mind going to London. The problem is they want me on the cricket team and the problem is I've never seen cricket. <laughs> now, I, I've, I've seen a glimpse and they, they wear white stuff, and they got, I think, big knee pads, I think. Really haven't watched it for more than a 30 seconds because I have no interest. I don't know what it's about. And I know somebody's throwing a ball, and I know they have a bat, but it's not bat, it's flat. That's about all I know about cricket. And I know you're trying to hit the ball, but other than that, that's all I know. I don't know if you hit the ball if you run. Uh, I don't know if you run left, I don't know if you run right. I don't know if you run straight ahead because I've never seen cricket. So if someone suited me up and said, get out there and play cricket, I'm at a total loss because I've never seen it. That's how it is with being a spiritual leader. If your father didn't show you how to do it, how the heck would you know? You won't know. So... Um, when guys hear that they should be spiritual leaders, it's easy to get intimidated. Uh, oftentimes, um, our wives go to Bible studies, more than one, and they really are in Bible studies, and they got binders, and they got notes, and they got all kinds of stuff, and they can spout scripture left and right, and guys get intimidated. Well, how could I be a spiritual leader? My wife knows more scripture than I do. But being a spiritual leader, it's not how much scripture you know, it's how much scripture you obey. You see, we're to be hearers of the word, but we're, the important part is not just to be a hearer, but to be a doer. So guys get intimidated about spiritual leadership. Um, spiritual leadership can be learned. Uh, it, it simply is what happens when you begin to follow Christ and you begin to interact with the scriptures. And the other thing that happens, the closer you get to Christ, the more masculine you become, and you, realize, you begin to find out about yourself. Some guys are upfront leaders. Most guys are behind-the-scenes leaders. But you begin to figure out how you're wired and what your skill set is. That skill set you have, where'd you get it? You got it from God when he formed you and fashioned you in the womb. And then you kind of figure out, begin your leadership style, and you get around other mature men. The older men are to teach the younger men and you begin to watch certain guys, and you begin to do what they do. That's kind of how it works. When a guy gets serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about following you. I'm all in with Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I want to be a man uh, in whose life Christ is first. I've lived enough for myself, long enough. I've been half in, half out. I'm serious now. So now the enemy is serious about you. 
Uh, it's First Peter 5, I believe. Um, Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And when a guy gets serious about following Christ and stepping up in the spiritual leadership and saying, Lord, I'm re- I'm re- I'm, I'm, I want to learn, you can expect opposition. Uh, the enemy's plan is to take you out and to trip you up when you get serious about Christ. Last week, I gave you four counter strategies out of this passage. I want to repeat them. Um, because we kind of need to tattoo them on our minds for the days in which we're living. So, out of that text, Ephesians 5, 15 to 18, I gave you four principles. Number one, or counter strategies. Number one, make God's wisdom a priority. Not the wisdom of men, but God's wisdom. That's your number one priority, is to know the wisdom of God which comes in the scriptures. Secondly, realize your time is precious. We've all wasted time, we've all squandered time, but as the passage says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. You want to use your life to be strategic. Doesn't mean you can't ever take a day off or take a vacation or anything like that, but what it means is, you're thinking through your life in the remaining days. You've got biblical priorities, and you're not going to waste your life frittering your life away doing stuff that doesn't count. If you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, that means you're going to be consciously connected. Um, they've been entrusted to your care. Yeah, your adult kids, there's... You're, it's different. They're not little kids. They're adults. They have their own lives. But you're there. You love them. You're concerned. They got to make their decisions, but you want to be connected. You want to be available. You don't want to tyrannize. You don't want to dominate. But there's a loving concern and an availability when it's appropriate. You get my drift. Okay. But if, if you retire and get a Winnebago and just take laps around America. And you take a lap and you're home for 10 days and get your mail, and then you take another lap for nine months, and then you take another lap, you're not connected. And you're really squandering your time. Doesn't mean you can't take trips, you get what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, Third counter strategy, seek to understand God's will. Uh, He says in 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my will, not my wife's will, not my mother-in-law's will, not some other family, not peer pressure. Lord, what's your will? What do you want me to do? What's the next step for me? How do we handle this situation where I'm in over my head? What is your will? Uh, When you seek to understand God's will, I touched on this briefly. God's general will for us is in the Bible. So you read your Bible, and there are certain specific sections in Scripture where it says, this is the will of God, this is the will of God. We'll look at one later. But you get the will of God in the Scripture. 
you get the mind of Christ in the Scripture. So general principles of, what, of who God is, what He wants you to know, how you walk in wisdom are in the Scripture. But then there are times when we have specific questions about specific situations that we're facing and we can't go to a verse to tell us, all right, here's what you do in this specific situation. And so you're looking for specific answers. The question is, how do you get specific wisdom when you're confused and you're unsure and you're just trying to sort it out? Well, obviously, Scripture is your base. But, but let me suggest something to you that I didn't touch on last week. When you're pondering a, a job, a change, when you are pondering a financial decision, when you are pondering and you're saying, Lord, I really want to know your will. Um, I'll give you a couple verses. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. Um, the second principle is also out of Proverbs. It's Proverbs 15.22. Plans fail when there is no counsel, but in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Some translations say. Some say in a multitude of counselors, there is victory. The principle is, when you're looking for an answer from the Lord as to what His will is in a specific situation, the principle is that you should go to some wise men. Wise men who are, you trust their walk with the Lord, you trust their integrity of their life, they're men of the Scriptures, and you go to your buddy who you trust and you say, hey, let me run something by you. I'd like your input. And see what he says. You should have two or three people like that that you go and you talk to because they're in the Word, they're in the Scripture. Um, uh, talk to your wife. How does she feel about it? Is she walking with the Lord? Does she know the Lord? Is she in the Scripture? In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. And oftentimes, God will give you specific Sometimes you need a red light or a green light. I have friends who out of the blue will call me and say, hey, you got 10 minutes? I need to run something by it. Yeah. Let me run this by it, and I want your reaction. I'll do that with them. You see, you're walking with wise men. I've had times where I specifically asked the Lord for a specific answer and talked to three different guys and it was in regard to a financial decision, and it was in regard to a number, and all three gave me the exact same number. All three. Yeah, I mean, that's what you call clear. And now, it's time to obey. Okay. Uh, here was the fourth counteroffensive out of this passage. Uh, the fourth principle was simply, don't be a drunk. I, I was trying to be... Um, uh, subtle there. But that's not real subtle. But that's what the passage says. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, I would add a fifth to what we talked about last week. And the fifth one is also out of verse 18. The fifth counteroffensive would be um, walk wisely under the control of the Spirit 
and the word. Walk wisely under the control of the spirit and the word. I mentioned last week that Ephesians 5.18, when it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, The Scripture speaks against drunkenness. All kinds of passages against drunkenness. Uh, I made the statement that the Scripture doesn't speak against the use of wine, but it certainly speaks against the abuse of wine. Um, The problem is drunkenness. The problem is control. When you're drunk, you're out of control. When you are drunk, go back to verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. The problem with drunkenness is that when you're drunk, you can't walk carefully. When you're drunk, you can't walk with wisdom because you are controlled by something outside of you. Most guys in here at one time or another have been drunk. Let's just take a minute and have a testimony session of all the positive things (laughs) that have come out of your life in episodes of drunkenness. There are no positives because we're out of control. We're not ourselves. We're not wise, we're foolish. And I mentioned last week when you talk about the filling of the Spirit in 518, do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. That's a waste. It's worthless. But be filled with the Spirit. There are different aspects to the body of Christ. And some people look at Acts chapter 2, where the filling of the Spirit, they, they all spoke in tongues. They were all gathered in Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God came, came upon them, and they began in speaking in languages that they did not know. And in fact, not just languages, but even in dialects. I believe it's dialectos in the text. And you had these men all over the world, and they heard these guys praising God in their own dialect. Not just in English. I mean, the guys from uh, New England would have heard someone praising God with a Boston accent who'd never been to Boston. And the guys from Alabama would hear somebody praising God uh, in Montgomery, Alabama dialect. That's how specific it was. It was known language. And they heard them praising God, and they heard the gospel. It was not unintelligible speech. It was comprehended. So the gift of tongues is known human language. Uh, If you go into 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it talks about tongues. It says tongues then is for a sign not to believers, but to unbelievers. So many churches that major in the spiritual gifts, for them, their practice the well-meaning, tongues is for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers. They'll say, well, no, tongues is an unintelligible language, and you use it in private. When you read in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it wasn't private, it was public. And when unbelievers were there, it was a sign, just as it was in Acts 2. 
when you look at this very, very carefully. Now, why am I going into this? In Acts 2, they were filled with the Spirit. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only way to be controlled by the Spirit. Here, in Ephesians 5.18, when it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled, be controlled by the Spirit, it's not talking about public meetings, speaking in other languages. It's not talking about... uh, Healings, although you had healings in Acts, and God still heals today, we believe God still heals. Uh, I don't think anyone has the, in fact, I know that no one has the gift of healing like the apostles had. Because they were confirming their authority as apostles of Jesus Christ. But God can heal. Where If you, any of you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church, anoint him with oil, and lay hands that he may be healed. Sometimes God heals, sometimes he doesn't. That's his call. But God can heal. I've seen him heal. To be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean it's spectacular. Sometimes it's spectacular, sometimes it's astonishing, sometimes it's stunning. You see the power of God. What you've got in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, and he's not talking about big meetings that are broadcast on TV. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, with signs and wonders in your home. In your home. Not spectacular. In your home. Uh, I talked about this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I feel like I got to hit it again because there's so much confusion about the filling of the Spirit. God wants me to live the Christian life in my house. I've never had trouble being spiritual at church. I know how to do that. I know how to play the game. I know how to talk the language. I mean, I, I, I was raised in church. Many of you guys were too. We know the lingo. We, we, know, we know the drill. How you doing? Hey, praise God. How are you? Good to see you, man. Oh, oh, hi. I've never had trouble being spiritual at church. I've had a lot of trouble being spiritual on the way to church. <laughs> I remember when we had small kids, and I was pastoring a church. And I had this goal, it was kind of unrealistic, but I had a goal to be there on time. <laughs> and always, every, every Sunday something happened. Josh would come downstairs, and he's got a, a red sock and a green sock, and it's not Christmas. That's not going to work. Or John would come down, and something, or, you know, someone's got a bloody nose. Or Rachel, and, and I'm waiting, I'm just waiting, I'm standing at the bottom of the stairs. Come on, let's go, let's go. I, I don't know what Mary's doing. I, I, I don't know what she's doing. But she, we got to go. We got to go. It's five minutes. It's 10 minutes late. Finally get him in the car, and I start driving 55 and a 25. (laughs) And I'm going, I mean, it's like the chase scene in Bullet, if you ever saw that thing. (laughs) And, you know, the kids, and then something happens with the kids in the back, and I'm driving like this and trying to separate them, and you you sit, you know, and, and then I'm starting to sweat. I come roaring into the parking lot. I pull in. I get out, and a lady says, oh, pastor. How are you today? Oh, praise God, I'm, I'm fine. How are you? 
And my kids see that. They see it. So when he talks about be filled with the Spirit, here's, here's all I'm going to say on this. If, and I said it last week. If you take two Bibles, open them up. So over here, you got Ephesians 5.18. Over here, you got another Bible with Colossians 3.16. Here, uh, here it says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. And then over here, in Colossians 3.16, it says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, what you're going to do is, then you're going to compare everything that comes after those verses. And what you're going to see is, is that in... After it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, you're going, to talk, you're going to see it talks about your speech. You're going to see that it talks about always giving thanks. It's, got to, it's going to talk about your attitude of submission to those who are in authority. Then you're going to see it's going to talk to wives. Then it's going to talk to husbands, that you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then it's going to go to children. Then it's going to go to fathers. Then it's going to, going to go to masters who had slaves in those days that you treat them in a Christian way and not abuse them because they're brothers in Christ. Then if you just look over the other Bible, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then what comes after that? The same exact stuff in same order, which tells me that being filled with the spirit, being controlled by the spirit, it's a two-sided coin on one side, to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by Spirit. The other side is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within me. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to control me. Do you see that? They're not separate. They're together. Yeah. Okay. Very important. Because... How do you get the wisdom of God? By the word. How do you get... How, how do you get the will of God in the word? It, the word is critical. Deuteronomy 32. It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. This is the word of Christ. Martin Luther was in, his friends kidnapped him to save his life. He was in, I think, Wartburg Castle. He's translating the scriptures out of the original languages into, into everyday German so that people can get the word of God for the first time. And one night he had a vision. And it was a vision, uh, it, 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 looked like he thought it, it looked like the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what Luther did? He had an inkwell and he threw it at the vision. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. The Lord Jesus has already been revealed to me in his word. That's powerful. That's powerful. People all the time, you got to be real careful with this stuff. You got to be real careful. But if Christ were to show up, he would say nothing different than what's in this book because it's the word of Christ. I said it before, I'll say it again. Some Bible publishers, some of you guys have Bibles and the words of Christ are written in red. Your whole Bible ought to be red. It's all the word of Christ. We mentioned last week that 
if you're going to follow Christ, and I just mentioned it earlier, you've got an enemy who wants to take you out and he wants to neutralize you. He's going to try and ambush you. Um, we are told to be careful how we walk, not as unwise men, but as wise with the wisdom of God, because we've got an enemy who wants to devour us, who wants to ambush us, who wants to take us out. In other words, as we follow Christ, there are landmines. He'll set up traps, he'll set up ambushes uh, of discouragement, of temptation, of all kinds of stuff trying to take us out and neutralize us and get us off the track of following Christ. This is why we have to walk carefully with God's wisdom. What I want to do tonight is I want to talk some more about landmines. And I want to pull back, and I want to kind of look at the, the big picture of the Christian life. And when a man follows Christ, you are going to encounter for sure, landmines, that if you trip that wire, potentially it'll do tremendous damage to you and to those you love uh, in three areas. The three areas would be um, money, sex, and power. Three great temptations that every man encounters who's walking with Christ. So tonight, let's talk about these landmines. Uh, we need to identify them so that we can be careful how we walk because some of us are being set up, even as we're here tonight, and being enticed and being pulled in, and we haven't seen it. But looking at the Scripture will help us to see it and identify it. Let's talk about first the landmine of sex. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God invented sex. God came up with a whole idea. God is for sex. It's how the race is propagated, and it's just not for the propagation of the species, but it's for the intimate pleasure that a husband and wife enjoy in the marriage relationship. Let me say this to you. Uh, we're living in evil days. In evil days, uh, our evil days, uh, basically the name of the game is you can't judge me and anything I want to do, if I feel it's right, it's right. Uh, that's the prevailing consensus of the world, as you know. Here's what God says about sex. God, here's what God says. What God says is that the only sexual relationship that he condones and approves is that of a husband and wife who are married. Period. Anything else is sin. That's what you call narrow. That's not what you call diverse. That's what, not what you call open-minded. But it's the will of God, and it's for our good, and it's for our benefit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we read these words, beginning with, let's just start at 4.1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus 
that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk. Oh, that's interesting. There it is. How you ought to walk. We've been in Ephesians 5. We want to walk wisely, not as unwise. Here it is. Christian life is one big walk, is what it is. That as you receive from us instruction as to how you, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel so more. I want you to grow. You're doing well, but I want you to continue growing. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is God. He spoke the world into existence. He created the world. He upholds the world. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The law of gravity works because Jesus makes it work. Jesus invented quantum physics. This whole thing is his. He created Adam. He created Eve. That's either true or it isn't. When he speaks, we listen because he's God. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what does that mean? We'll get to it in a minute. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And what's sexual immorality? Anything other than a sexual relationship with your wife. That's sexual immorality. Well, we're living together. Well, you're in sin. That's immoral. It's real clear, and it's for our benefit. Uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I, I want to do something that may seem a little crazy. I want to talk about sanctification for a minute, real quick. Because we throw around these words in church, and a lot of times we don't know what the words mean, and we're in, a, we're in a church here where we're taught the Scriptures carefully. But a lot of churches uh, are in the 45, 50 minutes of singing and, you know, and then a 15-minute sermonette that not much time has been spent on. And we don't really want to get into a lot of truth because we don't want to offend anybody because we want everybody coming back so that we can keep growing. But when you're in a church like that, you can't grow, and people are immature. And, I mean, you might as well... I mean, why go? If you're not being fed the Word of God, that's not, that's not a church. Um, I'm going to give you some stuff here. Just, I'm going to take about five minutes and give you kind of a cliff note thing on sanctification. What the heck does sanctification mean? When we are saved, there are three aspects to salvation. Number one is justification. When you hear the gospel and you understand that Christ came, went to the cross, died in your place, died for your sin. Um, and that when you trust in Christ as, as your Savior, when, uh, Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. So Christ died in my place. When I hear the gospel, I can say, Lord Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died in my place. I believe that you paid the price for my sin so that I could be saved and have eternal life. And I receive your forgiveness. I ask you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord and my God and my Savior and my Master. And now you're going to walk with it. 
You see? And maybe you don't have all those words down and you don't get it and you don't get it all because you're just a babe, you're an infant. You don't get the whole thing. And you don't have to get it exactly right. You just say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. He gets it. He reads your heart. Right? You don't have to do a theological homily. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus, help me. He'll help you. He'll save you. Okay. So justification is what happens when... We trust in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Watch this. Forever, legally. The wrath of God that should have come upon us for our sin was placed on Christ. To put it in a certain frame, God is not mad at us anymore. God is not angry. His wrath was put on Christ, not on us. So Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You've got peace now with the Father. Your sins are forgiven forever. That's justification. It's long-term. You're going to heaven. There's another aspect to it. There's sanctification, and then there's glorification. Let's jump to glorification. Glorification is what happens at the end of your life on earth when you die. When you die, when you take your last breath, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. You've got eternal life when you take your last breath. You've got eternal life when Christ comes into your heart and regenerates you. You're carrying eternal life right now. That means when you take your last breath, you don't go out of existence. You continue to live. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. You are immediately in the presence of Christ. Your spirit, not your body. Your body is in the ground. Glorification is what happens at the return of Christ. Won't take the time to go to 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, but the trump's going to sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Those of us who are alive and remain shall meet them and him in the air. That's when you get your new imperishable body. That's forever. That's glorification. No arthritis. No knee replacements, no uh, all that, none. Perfect forever. I love that. Don't you? Forever. Forever. Okay. Between justification and glorification, you've got something called sanctification. What the heck is sanctification? Uh, Sam Storms has kind of compiled it. And I'm going to read you a little stuff from Sam Storm. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to focus. I need you to stay with me. Because you're going to see how the Spirit of God works in regard to your daily walk. Your walk. Okay? Okay, small print. Sanctification is a transformation through consecration. The Greek word often translated sanctification carries both the sense of consecration, which means dedication or set-apartness. When I think sanctification, I think I'm set-apart. I'm set-apart because now I belong to Christ. I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Um, I, I remember the verse. I can't remember the content. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 
You belong to Christ. You've been set apart for Christ. There is also the sense of transformation, which means renewal and change. I'd give you 1 Corinthians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Romans 6.19, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Now catch this. By God's grace, the believer is set apart unto God as his own possession and inwardly energized by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to grow into Christ-likeness. So this is a process where the Spirit of God is now in you, and you're going to go from immaturity to maturity. I'm going to stop and read a quote from J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle. Ryle said, I'm convinced that the greatest proof of the extent and power of sin is the persistence in which it cleaves to men, to a man, even after he is converted. Uh, this infection of sin nature doth remain, even in them that are regenerate, even those that have Christ and the Spirit of God is living within you. So deeply planted are the roots of human corruption that even after we're born again and renewed and washed and sanctified and justified and made living members of Christ, these roots remain alive in the bottom of our hearts. And like the leprosy in the walls of the house, we never get rid of them until the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved. We'll never get rid of sin until we're glorified. We're going to battle it. But here's the deal. As we're walking, because the Spirit of God is in us and we put the Word of God in us, we're learning to kill sin. John Owen said, either you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. All right? So now we're in a battle. Walking with Christ is a battle. Put on the full armor of God because you got an enemy who wants to take you out. Okay. Back to sanctification, Sam Storms. Sanctification or growth in holiness is primarily an inner transformation of the intellectual, spiritual, and moral essence of a person such that one's beliefs, values, desires, and choices are increasingly renovated and renewed and brought into alignment with those of Jesus Christ himself. So, because you're now walking with Christ, there will be a change in your life. We are in Ephesians 5. Go to Ephesians 4. Let me show you how this change works. Uh, look at verse 20 of Ephesians 4. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here's what happens. We put Scripture in our minds. The Spirit of God uses that Scripture to teach us, to transform us, to empower us. And you say, is this going to happen overnight? And the answer is no. It's a slow growth. You're going to struggle. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to wonder if you're even a Christian. This is a slow process. But it's sure. Okay. 24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and in the holiness of the truth. Now watch this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. So you used to be a liar? Start speaking truth. 
You know, I really have a problem with lying. I used to have a problem with lying. I remember when I had to call a guy in our church, because it was a Saturday night, I was going to teach this passage the next morning, and I was convicted because earlier in the week, he and his wife had been in the reception area. The receptionist was gone. I saw him pull into the parking lot. I thought she'd be right back. I was trying to study. They're waiting five minutes. I thought, where is she? Ten minutes. Finally, I thought, I better get out there. There's a hallway going this way to more offices, this way to the reception area. I walked out, took a step here, looked over, and I, oh, John, I didn't know you were here. I knew he was there. I saw him pulling in the parking lot. No big deal. Until Saturday night, I was praying that God would use me to help all these people in my church grow in Christ. But the problem was, he wanted me to grow in Christ. So I had to call John, and I had to ask, told him, hey, you know the other day? When, you know, yeah, I said, hey, I lied to you. I knew you were there the whole time. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed, and I am sorry, but I flat out lied to you, John. He said, we never should have called you to this church. He didn't say that. He was very gracious. He said, Steve, I appreciate I appreciate your letting me know. You've you got to kill sin. And, and if you want to kill it, resolve this, Lord, I, I, I want to be a truth teller. And so the next time you lie to somebody, if you have to admit, say, yeah, I've done this before. I've had to say to somebody, you know what, I just lied to you. I'm sorry. I'm trying to quit lying. And for some reason, I told you a half-truth here. That's not even a quarter truth. That's not right. Let me tell you the truth. I'm very sorry, but I want to be straight up with you. They're not going to reject you. They're going to respect you. Because they deal with the same thing. This is how you build trust. You can go to Harvard. You can go to Wharton. You can go to all these business schools, ethics. You know, we're going to study ethics. Someone asked John Gardner, the, the great mentor in leadership. He was speaking at one of the business schools, the Ivy League school. Someone came up to him. Sir, Mr. Gardner, how does one develop trust? He said, try being trustworthy. <laughs> Pretty simple. 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear Maybe you're always criticizing or critiquing. Say, Lord, zip my mouth. Let me speak a word that edifies. Let me speak a word that builds up and not that tears down. This is sanctification, and you're working it out daily. He goes on and says, when talking of sanctification, we need to avoid the two most obvious and dangerous extremes. There is, on the one hand, the legalistic hypocrisy of Phariseeism in which one conforms externally to a standard set of rules while largely devoid of inward sincerity. We've all been in churches, and they got this rule, this rule, this rule. Basically, you can't have any fun. If it's fun, it's out. We follow Christ. We follow the Scriptures. The despair of the Lord is our strength. No, it's the joy of the Lord. But all you're doing is doing rules and regulations and you're a bureaucrat. That's not the Christian life. That's legalism. Uh, the second mistake is on the other side of the spectrum. 
There is, on the other hand, the antinomian freedom. Antinomian means lawless. The lawless freedom of those who would turn God's grace into an excuse for immorality. Oh, I'm saved. I can do anything I want. Well, Romans says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then Paul says, may it never be. Well, I'm forgiven. I'm justified forever. That's right. If you love Christ and he's in your heart, you're not going to live a life that's displeasing to him. You're not going to go live like hell. You're going to live in appreciation. So it's not a license to go do whatever you want. Okay. Sanctification is primarily, catch this, about having one's character shaped by the Holy Spirit and how that transformed inner life expresses itself in conduct. Holiness should never be defined merely in terms of what you don't do, but primarily in terms of how closely you resemble Jesus in your relationships, how closely you reflect Jesus in your behavior. He goes on and says, we must never forget that the Holy Spirit works in us through means, through means. What he means by that is that there's a power within us but God also uses the means of Scripture. He uses the means of confession of sin. There should always be a quickness to repent of sin in your life. The more mature you are in Christ, the more you've got a hair trigger in, in regards to sin and repenting and dealing with it. It's, it's the only wise way to live. You, you, don't, you don't secret it. You don't harbor it. You don't you deal with it. Keep short accounts with God. Be quick to turn away from sin and turn to Him. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. We're sinners. We're going to keep dealing with it. But I'm in the Word, so the Word can control me. When I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit, I deal with it. If I need to go to someone and make something right, Go to them and make it right. You guys getting this? It's, it's the Spirit of God controlling me and building my character. He's transforming me. There's more, but we'll move on. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6.12. This landmine of sex. My gosh, here's the deal. God gave us a sexual drive. I mean a sexual drive. Men and women are different. I don't know if you picked up on this. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you take most guys in this room and most guys that I know, and they would say that they have a much higher sexual drive than their wife. Guys just don't have a sexual drive They have a sexual, they have a sexual wind sprint. I mean, it's intense. And the enemy, it's how God made us. It's how the race is propagated. And the enemy knows this, and he uses it, and he uses it against us all the time. First uh, Corinthians 6, the landmine of sexual temptation. Uh, Paul's talking about 
those who won't inherit the kingdom of God in 9 and 10 and 11. Some were in all kinds of sexual sin. Some were idolaters. Some were thieves. Some were swindlers. He says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Watch this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Uh, the, the phrase, all things are lawful for me, most commentators believe that this was a phrase that was used among the Corinthians. Oh, I'm forgiven. All things are lawful for me. I'm in, I, it's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. So I can do whatever I want. Kind of a phrase, they, oh, all things are lawful for me. Paul quotes that, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, you, you can be mastered by sex. Uh, let's go back to the drunkenness thing. Don't be a drunk. Uh, alcohol can uh, turn you upside down. A alcohol can absolutely control your life. Some of you guys have fought this. and God's given you grace. Uh, but, 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 you know, uh, you deal with it every day. But there are different kinds of drunkenness, as I said last week. You can be drunk on food. In, in most evangelical churches, that, that's okay. That's biblical. You get a pass on that. Um, you, you can be drunk on money. You can be drunk on pride. You can be drunk on control. You can be drunk on all kinds of things. But see, the whole thing is, when you're drunk... You're controlled by an outside force instead of the Spirit of God. Paul says, I won't be mastered by anything. If uh, uh, I'll say this in terms of sex. Look at Psalm 101. So this happens to guys. It's late at night. Your wife's in bed. The kids are in bed. And, you know, you're just kind of can't sleep. And you get on the Internet and you're looking around. And you've you got to be careful. You better walk carefully because you're going to get set up and picked off. Psalm 101, verse 2, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. If you struggle with pornography, you should memorize that verse. In regard to what you watch on the television. Because you, you can watch unbelievable filth. They'll just pipe it right into your house and you get to pay for it. It'll ruin your life and ruin your relationships. I will set no, I will walk within my house. Did you see that? I will walk. I will walk. I'll walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I'll set no worthless things before my eyes. Jesus, you've got to help me here. And then you go to some website you shouldn't be on and you're ashamed and you pray, and Lord, I'll never do it again. You're going to do it again. This is how it works. Because there are some sins you can't beat by yourself. You need the help of somebody else. James said, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So if you struggle with pornography, and here's the thing, pornography keeps getting worse and worse because it's insatiable. And over time, you need more and more, and that's how guys get into the stuff that's just unimaginable. But at some point, you've got to put the brakes on and say, Jesus, help me to kill this sin. So what you're going to have to do is what you don't want to do. You're going to have to go to someone who you trust that they can keep a confidence, and you're going to have to expose your sin and say, I deal with this. They won't reject you if they're mature in Christ. They'll embrace you. They'll walk together with you. 
Confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then you start walking through life together on this issue. And you can sign up for Covenant Eyes. And at the end of the month, you each get a report of where the other guy has been on the web, every place. And if you know someone else is going to see where you've been, that's an impetus to not do it. It's called accountability. Let's talk about a second landmine, now that I'm out of time. And then a third landmine. Let's talk about the landmine of money, of money. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. You've got to have money to exist. But Jesus said in Matthew 6 that you cannot love God and money. Flip over to 1 um, Timothy 6. This is a huge landmine in a place like Dallas because there's a lot of money in Dallas. The economy's going crazy. Uh, it's booming, as you know. Um, a lot of nice cars, a lot of nice houses, a lot of nice stuff. When they went into the promised land, later you can read Deuteronomy 6. God said, I'm going to give you houses. I'm not done here. I'm just telling you Deuteronomy 6. God says, I'm going to take you in there. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. In other words, God was going to take a dump truck of material blessings and just pour it on them. God's not against blessing his people. But then the Lord said, but be careful that these things don't turn your heart from me. And that's what happened. It's very easy to begin to love money. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.6. 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. How much do you need to be content? We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. I'm not there yet on that one. Are you? But Paul was. Now watch this warning, because there's a landmine he's going to tell us about. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. you got churches that say you should pray that you're rich. And this right here says those who want to get rich fall into what? Temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Guys lose their integrity over money. Guys sell out because of money. Guys violate principles because of money. All kinds of things happen because of a, the root of the love of money. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You say, but Steve, i got to have money. And you know, I'm, I'm working hard because I'd like to provide well for my family. Great, nothing wrong with that. You want to work hard, you want to provide, you want to give them a nice life? That's honorable. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. Well, how do I know the difference? Well, I mean, where's the line? Well, it's very subtle. So what you have to do is you've got to walk carefully. And you've got to pray about it. And you've got to say, Lord... When you drive home tonight, just ask him, am I loving money? Am I, am I about crossing that line? Would you let me know? Because you see, we all got blind spots. 
and he'll let you know. And if you think you do, here's the antidote. Take that money that you love and write a check that'll hurt you to a ministry. That'll hurt you. That'll cost you something. Because then what you've just done is that, that's, see, if, you get, if, you get, if a rattler gets you, you run down to the ER and they got some serum. They got an antidote. If the love of money is biting you, there's an antidote and it's called given, it shall be given unto you. You go ahead and give it so that it hurts sacrificially and you trust God to replace it. There's a guy in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 25 named Amaziah. It says Amaziah loved the Lord but not with a whole heart. And he had a situation where he's going to go to war and uh, he makes an alliance. He's in Judah. He takes some warriors in the north and Israel pays them like a hundred you know, talents of silver, whatever it was. He pays them a lot of money. You guys go to war with me. And then the prophet of the Lord came and said, hey, uh, God doesn't want you going to war. He goes, what? He, he doesn't want you going to war. And if you go to war, you're going to lose. And he doesn't want you making an alliance with those guys in the north or that other nation. And you will not win if you go into battle. And Amaziah basically said, what about the money? It's in the text. And he said to Amaziah, the Lord has much more for you than this. If you're in the middle of a deal and you've compromised and it's not quite right, yeah, but I've gone on because I put the money up and all that, and the Spirit of God convicts you, you know what? You better cease and desist because His favor will not be upon you. Yeah, but what about the money? He's got much more for you than that. You may not have it now, and you know what? You'll learn a lesson. But the eye of the Lord roams to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. You know, you know what? God has a way of honoring his men who walk in obedience at the right time. At the right time. It's a slight thing for him to return that money when you can handle it. third landmine is the landmine of power or selfish ambition. Uh, there's a good kind of ambition and there's a bad kind of ambition. Uh, real quick, James chapter 3. This is the love of power. This is, this is the love of control. Uh, in, in fact, in James 4, let me show this to you. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your, your pleasures that wage war in your members? Watch this. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. This is why there are wars on the earth. Uh, th this is why there's democracy and someone wants to topple a democracy and they want to be in charge. Because they want control and they want power. This can happen in a family, this can happen in a business. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you in any area of your life, on the world scene or in a business or friendships or family? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And watch this. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
Well, back up in uh, 3, 313. Who among you is wise and understanding? How do we want to walk? In wisdom. All right. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. There it is again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. And where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. There's selfish ambition, which uh, Bill Lawrence, I heard him in a class one time. He was brilliant on this. He said, selfish ambition is the need to lead. Selfish ambition is the need to be in charge. Selfish ambition is the need to control. And it happens to Christians. And those who are selfish, have selfish ambition in their heart, not a genuine ambition, there's a good ambition. We make it our ambition, whether in the body or not, to please the Lord. The right kind of ambition, Lord, I want to please you. I just want to walk with you. I want to know your will. But selfish ambition doesn't give a rip what he wants. It's what you want. Now, this operates in the world. It operates where you work. It, it operates in churches. I've seen this on church boards. And so have you. When we first started this Bible study, one night I showed a quick video of the top 10 hockey fights of 2003. It was pretty good. And I kept looking for a church board. I kept looking for a congregational meeting because I've seen some knockdown dragouts in churches, and so have you, because somebody has got selfish ambition. The need to lead, the need to be in charge. This happens in families, and it destroys families. That's not a godly wisdom, it's a demonic wisdom. So just flip over real quick to 3 John, to the right, and then we're done. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Apostle John, he, he, they'd sent out missionaries and they didn't have hotels, so they had to stay in homes. Hospitality was big. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, watch this, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. And who was saying this? John, an apostle with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to the deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. This is the landmine of power. It's the landmine of control. It's the landmine of needing to lead. It's the landmine of saying, praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, my will be done. That's selfish ambition. And we've all been there. It's destructive. You can't walk in wisdom. So let's pray. Father, this has happened to all of us. And what happens is 
Others around us can see it, but we are blind to it. I would pray that for any of these traps, for any of these landmines that may, that the enemy may be setting up an ambush for us, that you would open our eyes and that you would show us and that we would listen and that we would be teachable. And we might even need to talk to someone who loves us and who we trust and ask them, I'm concerned about this. Do you see this in my life? And if they say they do, may we not be defensive. But may we come to you and thank you for opening our eyes and for dying for that sin and receiving forgiveness and then to begin to walk in newness of life, to say, not my will, but thine be done. We need your help, and we have it. For that we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray.